Well, hi folks. Welcome back to Naturally Adventurous. This is yet another Ken and Charlie <laughs> physically together, speaking into the same recorder. Sitting on the same seats. Special edition. <laughs> uh, we're, we're staring out at the, the African bush here. There's probably about 15 species of birds around. I'm looking at a beautiful acacia pied barbet right now. This beautiful black and white bird with a red forehead like right in front of us. This is some of the best birding of any balcony I've I've been on, I think, of, of a hotel room. We're actually, well, we're guiding a trip right now, and we've seen about six species from our balcony <laughs> that we haven't yet managed to show to our group. So we're thinking we might have to do some little bird walk down here uh, tomorrow yeah. morning or something. But being in this setting, which is sort of a, a lodge in the bush of northern South Africa, prompted thoughts about... This, what you might call the safari industry or safari culture. Yeah. It's, uh, I think there's a lot to explore there. It's a it's big business, especially in South Africa, East Africa. I mean, it, in some places, it's it almost drives the whole economy. I think of northern Tanzania. Yeah. whole area around Kruger in eastern South Africa. So major, major economic thing. Massive infrastructure. Mm. I mean, the number of, like, game lodges in South Africa, <laughs> do you think it's less than a 1,000? No, no, way more. There's got to be, yeah, be more, more than yeah. a 1,000. Yeah. So you think about a 1,000 different lodges that are purporting to give you some kind of bush safari experience, um, and then the, the amount of staff each one of those lodges has. Some of these places charge upwards of $1,000 a night. You know, you, it involves transportation, guides to drive people around and show them usually mammals, providing catering for all these people. I mean, it's huge, huge industry. And that's just the private ones. You think of the, the nationally run ones as well, the national parks, you know, a large number of national parks with this huge number of visitors going. I mean, these places book out. Sometimes you can't, you can't even get in now. They restrict how many people go in gates and you've got to get a ticket to go in and yeah it's um it's something i heard in northern tanzania there you know there's a, maybe 150 bigger mammals and the name of every single one of them is taken by a, one safari <laughs> company and not only in english but also in swahili yeah there there's you have to come up with some combination if, or if you if you wanted to start a new safari company in in tanzania you're going to be really pushed good luck to name it after some kind of animal you might get a tree like a, one of the less prominent trees if you want to name it after some kind of species of of wildlife so one of the ones that um we've used before was called cysticola tors and cysticola is like one of the littlest kind of brownest <laughs> birds so that's what it comes down to i think if you <laughs> it's the last bird that wasn't taken so when I, I was reflecting on this there's a weird disconnect between where i'm interested to go and then where there's a huge industry around that wild environment so like this African savanna environment, there happens to be an enormous industry mm. built around it. It's it's almost this like cult-like thing, right? It's like, especially in South Africa, it's almost like you're enacting these family rituals of going to the bush, the bush yeah. over Christmas and finding a lion and drinking your gin and tonics at sundown in the bush. And <laughs> so many other natural environments around the world are loaded with amazing things and nobody engages with them 
on that level and there's no industry built around them. I mean, I think of a whole country like Mexico has fantastic natural environments and great things to see and almost no infrastructure, very little ecotourism, uh, virtually no eco-lodges, very few local people going to see those things, very few international visitors going yeah. to see those things. There's a lot of tourism, but it's all, or almost all, you know, kind of beach or, you know, a bit cultural or culinary. And I so think, I think it's sort of built on the prevalence of, of megafauna, isn't it? it well, that's yeah. exactly the yeah. conclusion I came to. Because, um, I mean, there are some big mammals in, like, say, South America and Asia, but they, they're just not not on the same scale as in Africa. You're not getting, you know, thousands of wildebeest sort of, you know, sweeping majestically across the savannah, you know. <laughs> I suppose it's a combination of megafauna and open environments in which you can the see ease them. ease of showing people and getting people around in big numbers, yeah. Because, there's, you know, there's some amazing big mammals in West Africa, you know, Congo Basin rainforest, but A, the environment makes it very hard to see them. B, a lot of those places are quite politically instable mm. or lack infrastructure. I think one of the places that you could actually do what you would call a safari would be in India. Some of the Indian national parks have got big animals, got tigers, you know, you've got buffaloes there, lots of deer, you know, rhinos, you know, got things that you can actually get on the back of a little four-wheel drive and zoom around and, and look at, you know. So um, I think that's the closest it gets to an African safari outside of Africa. Yeah, one thing, well, one major difference in India, there aren't a lot of, like, private lodges inside of mm. environments where you have big mammals. <clears throat> I don't know if there's just a lot more bureaucracy there, there often are like government rest houses inside of parks, but that's the only accommodation. They're not very good. You have a lot of private lodges, but they're all outside. It's a different dynamic than a place like Tanzania or South Africa, or Botswana, where you just have hundreds and hundreds of mm -hmm. like private concessions within publicly owned protected areas. I think the countries that it happens in as well, you also need a little bit of stability. And I know some countries that were previously very good for safaris, somewhere like Kenya, where they have some sort of instability or some terrorism or something like that. That can really, really hurt the industry. But places like Tanzania, South Africa, they've done very well um, out of building up like a safari industry. Interesting thing in South Africa is that there's also a domestic demand. Yeah, oh, huge. Yeah, yeah, which you don't really get in East Africa. No, so, not, so not much, much so yeah. far. Yeah. So it's all about big mammals for mm. sure. Like big mammals drive this whole industry. So I guess big mammals just have a magnetism that leader. other groups yeah. of organisms don't seem <laughs> to have. And I, as a birder, I don't know quite what to make of that. Is it, but I do think there's something natural to it. It's like, we just kind of empathize with other mammals mammals yeah. i mean it's i guess it's why you're a vegetarian in a way it's right like you feel a certain connection sure. with mammals yeah you like we yeah, we're more more closely related to them they feel more like us i think the drama that in africa also there's quite an emphasis on predators i think that's what everybody really wants to see is a lion or a lion kill or a leopard you know that's the, the kind of drama of it and the things that are shown on um, documentaries as well. I think that's a big, people want to see what they've seen on TV. 
So it makes me wonder if everybody had grown up watching specials about the birds of paradise yeah. or about the tanagers of uh-huh. the the Andean slopes. Yeah. Would would those things have sprouted massive industries? You know, are people just mimicking what other people do, or or like, is this desire to see mammals been cultivated by all this kind of marketing or just exposure to nature documentaries? I I, I think I think it's a big reason why somebody that's never been to Africa and is suddenly going to go and choose to go on an African safari. I think they've grown up. I've got a, I've got a good friend who's actually listening. Hi, James. How you doing? He went on his first African safari, and it was a big thing. Maybe we should ask him. Yeah. <laughs> We're probably not the best people to answer this question. Why do people want to go on a safari? But I'm sure it's got something to do with uh, all the, this this drama around uh, around lion kills and things like that, the predators and the, the, these names like the Masai Mara or the Serengeti, you know, they've Ooh, got very... Kind Gorongoro. Of, Gorongoro, yeah. I mean, there's, there's a theory I've heard bandied around in terms of people's enjoyment of Africa that this is where all people came from originally. Sure. You know, the, yeah. Like human evolution started probably in savannah environments in Africa and that we just have this weird affinity for it. Magnetism. The like the type of environment, like a savannah environment, is just aesthetically pleasing or feel at home. I don't know. I don't know. I, I did I remember I, I read something about those kind of cork oak savannas of uh, western spain and portugal that that would that had, they did a study of different landscapes around the world and that one was found to be the most aesthetically pleasing oh really wow. so, like so, and there might be something similar going on in africa where this kind of landscape of like grass dotted with trees and bushes just and, and certain types of trees you get these you get these like acacia trees that like these flat topped acacia that you just when you when somebody says africa and you close your eyes this is kind of what you imagine and um both ken and i we we sort of started our time in africa in cape town and after a year i moved away to the, the you know the far east and every time i would you know go away to asia or somewhere else um doing a tour and i would come back and i would sort of be driving you know towards my house and driving through these like savannas with you know very typical african scenery i i just felt like oh this this is africa this is a real <laughs> this is a real africa you know I always have that feeling in Namibia. You start in central Namibia, in the capital of Windhoek, and it's a very different kind of. Well, you're at the edge of the savanna there, but then you drive into the Namib Desert, and it's it's arid and very interesting. But when you drive north and you go up into those savanna environments, you often have that same feeling. Yeah, this is the real Africa. You're starting to see people living in grass huts and things as well <laughs> from the sort of fancy houses in, in Vintook. You, yeah, you get out of, the, out of the sort of wealthy, huge cattle farms and ranches into... People having goats and... Yeah, and more small-scale agriculture. Yeah. I mean, Africa. there's something weird about Africa. It's I think it's the continent about which people generalize the most yeah. for good and for bad. Uh-huh. And I... I'm sure I'm guilty of it too. Even in the way we're talking about it, we're sort of doing that. Yeah. It's a weird. It's it's kind of. I'm not quite sure why that is. You know, very people don't do a lot of generalization about South America, right? It's no. like, well, Colombia is a whole different world from Argentina. You don't really lump them particularly. Yeah, people have very set images about what they think Africa is like, and sometimes they just, they're surprised. Like we bring people to South Africa. 
and maybe that's what they're expecting on these savannas and big animals. I mean, we, we drove over some mountains the other day and it was snowing. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, <laughs> and, uh, you know, we did a game drive today and it was freezing cold. So it's, Oof, um, it was cold. It, people are often surprised by seeing something that, that differs from their, their prediction. It seems like people come to Africa with m much more fixed expectations mm. of what it's going to be. I think when people go to South America, they're more open to just whatever it happens to be. Like the backpackers I remember bumping into in Bolivia, I think they weren't there to have a classic South American experience. They were just kind of just moving around and seeing what there was to be mm. seen. Whereas people seem to want to come to Africa and have a certain kind of experience. Yeah. I mean, it, a weird place where I was recently that might be analogous is Jerusalem. I felt like everybody in Jerusalem had some idea of, of what they wanted to get out of it, what they right. wanted to experience. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's a weird dynamic, a place like that. So, yeah, I mean, we've chatted about why people maybe come and um, what they expect to see. But, I mean, the actual industry itself it's it's often sort of centered around like safari vehicles and being driven around by a, you know a local person that's imparting their their bush knowledge and they kind of fall in line don't they 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 they, they definitely sort of uh, supply what you expect when it comes to that They're almost aspect. playing playing a role yeah. oftentimes i mean today and they'll all say certain things like you'll go on a little bumpy road and they'll say, ha ha, this is an African massage. You oh, know? yeah. <laughs> all across the continent. <laughs> the whole continent saying the same thing. And we've heard this a million times, but these people that are, you know, first time in Africa, they go, oh, African massage. Yeah, it's. Um, and then they're coming out with, oh, Hakuna Matata and coming out with all the little Lion King, Lion uh, King. phrases. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all across the continent the first time you see a warthog yeah. the local guy will inevitably Pum say oh there's Pumba and everyone's like oh, oh Pumba Pumba <laughs> oh we want to see Simba oh. yeah there's there's such an industry and such a culture around it that there's just a lot of like imitation of certain things like like the sundowner is such a yeah. big thing I mean a lot of Americans might not even know what that is but it's like I mean it sounds so weird to even describe it it's like you're on safari, you're driving around in a savannah environment towards the end of the day, and you stop somewhere, usually with a good view, and you drink an alcoholic drink, which traditionally would be a gin and tonic, maybe hearkening back to British colonial I days. Bet, but yeah. I mean, it, it's such a, a ritualized thing. It's, it's funny. Um, it's, not a, it's not bad. It's just like everybody does this. It, you know, every lodge does it, and every, everyone providing game drives does this it's fun yes yeah, it's, it's not yeah. bad it's, uh, you kind of once you've done it a few times you kind of start to expect it <laughs> <laughs> doesn't come as a huge surprise no i think the idea is like people have never been in africa you like suddenly stop at a beautiful viewpoint and then oh my goodness these guys brought drinks and they yeah. put out some snacks and it's like oh wow this is amazing <laughs> when you've seen it 50 times it doesn't have quite the same surprise value yeah but I think having these local drivers and it, it might be the only peop the only kind of local person that you know somebody meets on their trip that just can fly in and do a quick safari and then you know it's like a an authentic this is an authentic African you know they're 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 like a big part of it so it's not just the animals but I think this kind of 
local game game rangers you know it's very much part of the experience definitely yeah they're kind of romanticized and mm. all these people are at the front lines of conservation and they're rugged yeah. and you, you kind oh, of yeah. you feel like you're trusting them with your life you know and <laughs> this is a lion and you know you must right do this and that uh, there's a lot of adrenaline around yeah. seeing these animals and i mean i still feel it like today we had a, a big male lion <laughs> he, he just lost a fight to two other lions yeah and he's strolling along this road, and we stopped, and he walked by about four feet away. Yeah, huge male lion, and and I still felt this visceral. Yeah, it like I shouldn't be this close to this uh-huh. this predator. Like this is so. And when you consider that you know that's amped up to eleven for somebody who's never even seen a lion before. Yeah. It's it's funny today that the safari vehicles that we're using they they've almost got like no doors you know you've got your your whole side of your body is exposed and um, you know for this huge predator just to jump up and and pull somebody out and and start eating them you know it wouldn't it wouldn't be a huge effort on the lion's part to do that so I mean we (laughs) it has happened (laughs) yeah but so when we had one of these lions as well they were laying in the road and then they stood up and they walked just right next to the safari vehicle and everybody's sort of talking loudly and moving around and, and the driver's like nobody move <laughs> and everybody just stops you know so their word is is gospel you know you've got to do what they say um because you know you're putting your safety in their hands but um it is quite thrilling to be that close and not in a vehicle with windows you know in an open vehicle so i, I do uh, ask myself whether there are other natural environments or experiences around the world that could have industries around them. But there is something, it's it's going to be hard to beat an African safari. There there really is all these things we've talked about, like mm. this feeling of like returning to the your home environment and the abundance of big predators and just the overall abundance of mammals, the nature, the beauty of the environments, even the bird diversity. And it's quite a... A remarkable let's say package when it comes to somebody coming for three weeks you can you can really have an amazing experience it's kind of when you because a lot of people on our trip at the moment it's their first time in africa and when you see these people it's their first time you, you just know they're going to be absolutely amazed by this i mean it's almost like losing your virginity really you know you're you know, if you come back, you know, you've seen it all. Maybe you want to see some other animals. But just going somewhere the first time, I remember how it felt the first time. And just seeing even, like, like zebras and giraffes, like, walking across the plains. It was just it was just mind-blowing. It was like, I've been looking at this for decades on TV. And then suddenly I'm seeing it. I'm, I'm in the TV. You know, and it's just, um, I mean, it, for us now, because it's so long ago since we've, we came. I mean, you almost forget what it felt like, but um, it's a very special thing. Eh? I often tell people about northern Tanzania, which I think is my favorite tour that I've ever guided. I often tell people you would have to just actively hate nature <laughs> to not enjoy that tour. Yeah, it's almost impossible to not enjoy, isn't it? If, yeah. Yeah. Having all these lodgings that are embedded in a natural environment, it, it really is wonderful. And it really does give you a totally different kind of experience than being in some 
city hotel and then driving an hour to get to some forest, yeah. which is what you do on so many birding tours. So much of the world is like that. So you're going to some forest that local people often don't even know what you're looking for or why you're there. And what you see is, is fantastic. You know, obviously Charlie and I both love this kind of birding and seeing these birds, but it's a very different kind of experience than what we're doing right now. Like sitting yeah. on this porch, like looking out at the Savannah elephant might walk by any time. Even just the birding, you know, we're surrounded by wonderful bird habitat. It's like an immersion into an environment. Yeah. And I think having those kind of, you know, having hippos, you know, walking next to your tent or elephants strolling by your room, it's quite a, it's quite an amazing thing when you think about it, that you just, in a comfortable place with these dangerous animals like right there it's um incredible and and some of the, the the experiences you have are quite different in different places like often in south africa you're in a a secure camp that's got like an electric fence around it and you're kept safe in east africa sometimes there's no fence and you're in you know you might be 100 meters from the lodge building and you have to walk to dinner and, and it could be some dangerous animal and i remember in in Kenya, you know, you would have a, a Maasai warrior with a spear, and he would he would escort you. You know, they would come, and they say, "Okay, it's time to take you to the restaurant," and they and they'd be there with their spear, and they would protect you all the way to the restaurant. You know, it's and you do hear stories even, but you know, sometimes somebody kind of walked the wrong way and got trampled to death by a buffalo or whatever. So you've you've really uh, yeah. There's one lodge. <clears throat> I won't mention the name or where it is in the world, but I know of at least two people who've been killed there. Right. One was a kid that was in a, in a swimming pool and was dragged out and eaten by a leopard. And the other was a cook who was walking to the dining room to prepare an early breakfast. He, he, was, did, he didn't get his, his warrior with him to protect him. He had to go on his own. <laughs> and he was killed by a lion. So, really? um, yeah, that's a whole... I mean, some, a lot of it's for show, right? But there yeah. is a reality to the, yeah. the danger posed by these animals. It's sometimes people don't realize how dangerous these animals actually are. And sometimes people have certain thoughts, kind of stereotypes about which are the most dangerous animals. I think they're always most scared of like a lion or a leopard, but they'll think a big fat hippo, uh, friendly looking hippo is, you know, nice and cuddly and you can just walk up to it, you know. So they're... Um, somebody told me once that if anybody was to get killed on a tour, they're probably most likely to get killed by a, a hippo or a crocodile. And people don't really sense those as, as dangerous as, say, a lion. This reminds me of a time Charlie and I were guiding a big group and we arrived at a lodge in part of the Okavango Delta. And we checked in. We knew these folks pretty well. And we, and we went to the bar and there was just a really somber mood. And, you know, just a strange <laughs> feeling of like, what's going on here? And th they didn't want to tell the people we were guiding, but they eventually told us that uh, a woman, a young yes. mother, had been dragged into the water and eaten by a huge crocodile right in front of her kids at this lodge yep. the morning before we got there. And uh, apparently she'd been warned she'd not been to warned. go down there. Yeah. And she disregarded that. I mean, that she's was paddling in the edge of the river in the Okavango, and she, yeah, big croc came down. So that was that was definitely sobering. Um, I mean, there was another time 
that there was a hippo. Normally hippos, they kind of keep their distance when there's people around, but there was this one hippo and it was getting very friendly, you know, in inverted commas, and it was coming right up to the edge of the restaurant. And the restaurant staff were sort of taking it, taking people down and walking quite close to this. And I, I actually stopped them and said, look, you don't walk that close, you come back. And the, the, the restaurant people were like, oh no, this is friendly, one friendly. The next year when we went back, it had been shot. I think it had got a little bit too friendly. But I think that same hippo, we, we, went, we did a bird walk around just in an afternoon and we, we turned a corner mm, and I it, was, it was stood there and it kind of half like charged towards us and then kind of veered off. We, we kind of startled this animal. But it, I mean, hippos as well as crocodiles are just terrifying. But it all boils down to the, you know, you, you're there with somebody, whether it's us or whether it's a local, you know, game ranger or something. You, you follow their advice to the letter, you know, you don't. And sometimes you see people, you know, in national parks. There's certain national parks you can do self-drives as well. Say like in Kruger National Park in South Africa, a lot of people just, you know, drive in there with their own vehicles. But sometimes you'll see people getting out of their cars where they shouldn't be and, you know, they can, they can be fined. You know, there's big fines for doing it, but people still often do it regardless. I mean, the vast majority of fatalities that I'm aware of boil down to people who yeah. didn't follow rules or didn't follow local advice, you know, from lodges or guides and that sort of thing. So I wouldn't want to give a false impression that you're sort of taking a mortal risk by going no. on safari, but there is a reality to the uh, the danger posed by these animals. But if you do go on safari and you do follow advice to the letter, you're, you're almost certainly going to be safe. You know, in fact, they're, they're probably some of the safer places in Africa because, you know, you've, there's so little crime in there. You know, there's no violent crime and, you know, there's almost no theft. You know, it's quite... Uh, quite remarkable how relaxed you can feel about personal safety but yeah you do have to follow advice i suppose like anything that has a huge industry built up around it you do get some funny funny things happening in the safari <laughs> industry <clears throat> and this is something charlie and i've been chatting about is i just find that when you go from like a 40 dollar a night lodge to a 200 dollar a night lodge to a thousand dollar a night lodge there are very small differences and as you get into these higher-end lodges, it's like they're working harder and harder to convince you that they're doing something for you. <laughs> and everything gets very complicated. And they're sort of coming into your room many times a day to sort of like put your mosquito net up or down yeah. or like mess with your bedding. Or so like we, 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 did a, a, we do a morning drive here. And during the morning drive, they'll come in and make your bed. And then you go and do an afternoon drive. And then they'll come in and put the mosquito nets down. And then you go for dinner. And they'll come in again and then fold over the, the corner of the uh, of the duvet and leave like a little chocolate on the, on the pillow. <laughs> so it's like, you know, if they didn't do that, it wouldn't make a huge difference. Ken and I are looking at this most well, beautiful bird right now. <laughs> it's like pointing at it. Beautiful uh, sulfur-breasted bushrake. Oh, it's, just it's gorgeous. Come right in. Again, it's the first one we've seen on this trip. Yeah. <laughs> so last night, not only were there the various funny things, but like <laughs> the, there's, a, there's a gas fireplace in my room. That They turned that on, and they turned on the heat. It was so hot in my room when I went to bed that I ended up sleeping horribly because I didn't even realize the uh, the sort of the AC unit was on heating, and I you know I woke up in the middle of the night and I had to turn it off. 
you know, all, all of this was quite unnecessary. So it's kind of funny how sometimes when people are really trying to do something good for you, that it, the result isn't really positive. I think if, it depends it depends on who it is. I mean, obviously, Ken couldn't care less if he's sort of pampered and has a little chocolate on his pillow. But I mean, for some people, that's quite a nice touch. Right. You know, right. so um, I think it, w- it depends very much. Some, and then, yeah. some people really enjoy it. I also think that lodges are just trying to convince you that they've done something that was worth the vast amount of money you spent to stay in the lodge. <laughs> so it, when it comes down to nuts and bolts, I don't think that there's a whole lot of value in a chocolate on your pillow. You know, this is a place where you're getting way that, more. That chocolate enough. on your pillow is probably costing you an extra $50 right there. Right, right. <laughs> it's not like you're not getting enough to eat or something. It's, uh, yeah, it is, it is funny the way there's a fascinating dynamic with what lodges charge. I mean, places that are an order of magnitude more expensive often are not even as good as as places, you know, hundred dollar a night. I'm places. trying to think. I'm getting a few little images flashing into my mind of other fancy lodges that I've been to. But some of the other things, you know, every time we come back from a a game drive, they've got these little hot towels that you can get off and just sort of clean your face and uh, sometimes a little a little sort of cocktail a little drink or a little oh snack, welcome snack. drink welcome drink there's everybody there's another every, ritual for yeah, you everybody has a welcome even the fairly cheap lodges will have a welcome drink yep yep oh the towels and the welcome drinks wow yeah and, and you know another one of these rituals is like the lodge briefing and it's kind of like the nicer the lodge the longer the briefing <laughs> they want you to come in and have a welcome drink and towel off your face and then give you like a 30-minute briefing. And, it, it, and we're exhausted. We've yeah. been driving all day. All we want to do is go to the room. And they were like, okay, you know, it's, the, the spa is open from, you know, 9 a.m. to, you know, it's like, okay. We don't need to know that. We're probably not <laughs> eating breakfast at the time. You, you offer it to most people. Yeah. We're not doing any of those activities. Yeah, birders, birders are on a different track than, than most folks. And one thing we haven't really mentioned yet is that the vast majority of people that go on a safari are not really interested in the birds. And often safari vehicles will will stop or anyone on safari will stop their vehicle when they pass another vehicle and ask them what they've seen. So we're often there looking at birds, some little cystickler or little brown job, and uh, and they'll come along and say, oh, what are you looking at? They'll, They'll just assume that you've got a leopard under the tree. And you say, oh, it's just birds. And they say, okay, okay, just birds. And they'll just kind of drive away, just completely. Yeah, so it's, it's nothing. But um, it, it's also remarkable how few people actually have binoculars. Yeah. Because even if you've got absolutely no interest in the birds, mammals are not always right next to the vehicle. You know, you might have some, le- some distant lions under a tree. So even if you're not interested in birds, it always pays to have binoculars just to get better views of the different animals. Yep. It amazes me. People are spending tens of thousands of dollars to go see animals, wildlife. Don't bring binoculars. It's mm. very strange. What Ken and I do more than anything else is a birding safari. You know, we're looking at all the same big animals, all all the different wildlife, even reptiles, but then also birding. And and we don't. I don't think we see any less no. of the big animals. No, we t- often we see more. Just paying the, the, part more of attention. it is. Birders just spend longer hours in the field. Mm-hmm. We, all right, we pay more attention. We do a lot more scanning. People exclusively looking for mammals, they often spend a couple hours in the morning, a couple hours in the late afternoon. That's, that's their time in the field. This is another aspect of 
of safari culture is this obsession with the big five. Yeah. Everybody knows, everybody's heard this phrase, the big five. I don't know. I, maybe not everybody's has heard it. This lesson. I, th I think, well, just about everybody who makes it to Africa has heard of it, mm. I would say. But, oh yeah, do you want to explain yeah, what it is? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think originally it was something more to do with hunting because, you know, you would go out and they made a big five dangerous animals like whilst hunting. So even though there are more dangerous animals like hippos and crocodiles, which don't make it to the big five, these were, you know, if you want to walk up to the to a river and shoot a hippo, you know, it's pretty easy. But if you're stalking, you know, through the savannah trying to hunt, you know, a leopard, then, you know, you might be in danger. But basically the big five are elephant, rhino, buffalo, lion, and leopard. And they actually all appear on this. There's five different banknotes in South Africa. And on one side, you've got Nelson Mandela. And on the other side, you've got one of the big five. I mean, those are wonderful animals, but they're by no means even necessarily the the best ones to see uh very often lions are just plopped under a tree somewhere sleeping <laughs> it can be way more exciting to like watch jackals hunting or yeah. to come across a cheetah or you know a little group of giraffes which or something we, which we actually saw this morning yep. cheetah so there's there's a bit of a disconnect between what's legitimately most interesting and in what people want to see people just hear this phrase over and over big five big and, five big five and they five. feel that it's it's something that they need to do one when they're yep. on safari it's and, it's yeah. the yardstick of yeah. well we had a successful safari because we saw the big five and it, i mean a lot of it's just a, it's imitation it's just we're doing this because our neighbors did this and they saw the big five and we have to see the big five apparently with some of these um, emerging asian countries that are becoming more wealthy, they're even more obsessed with the big five than, say, Americans or Western Europeans. It's because I've talked to some uh, some sort of safari guides in <laughs> around Africa, and, and you know that for a lot of people, that is all that matters. Is oh, today we saw three of the big five. You know, that's your you know you had sixty percent success. Right. They don't care. You yeah. you could have seen a pangolin and uh, <laughs> we serval and a yep. Yeah. It's totally irrelevant. It's yeah. just you got to see those five animals. So it's. I it's, mean, it's like we we've actually you know we've seen four of the big five here. We're still missing leopard, but we've seen wild dog and cheetah, which both are more difficult and just incredible sightings. So you know we may not see a leopard, but we've still had an absolutely amazing safari. I definitely shudder a little bit when I hear this phrase, <laughs> "the big five. It's. I mean you. you it's even it's almost like a brand name in South Africa, yeah, big yeah. big five safari lodge, because yeah, yeah, yeah. not all protected areas have all of the big five. So it's it must be quite a it's a, a financially point. driven yeah. decision to basically manage an area and then to have all five of those animals, because then you can brand yourself as a big five lodge. Yeah. I mean, there's even one, there's there's probably a couple around Cape Town that are big five safari lodges where and it's, it's basically just a, just a, a bit of fame bus and they've just yeah, thrown them behind a fence. The, like yes. those animals didn't all belong there. <laughs> certainly not at those densities, but you're dumping them all into a relatively small enclosure and then selling that as a big five safari because people are in Cape town and that's their first or only African experience. And right. they want the big five and yeah. yeah, you get some, some funny products in this whole safari line. I remember there was a there was a fantastic reserve near where I used to live in South Africa called Mkuzi Game Reserve, and it didn't used to be Big Five. They didn't have lions there, and it was great. It was never super busy, 
you could always get rooms there and there weren't you know it was fairly quiet you could drive around and then they made it a big five reserve and then suddenly you know you couldn't get bookings the place was full you know and even though you, you couldn't really see them on a regular basis you know there's sort of five lines that they'd put in there so just it's, have it's that a little, cachet of yeah it's a little ridiculous being in that category. and the other thing is you know they, there's a certain infrastructure that you need certain security precautions like camps that are surrounded by electric fences and often you're not allowed to get out of the vehicle anymore like in Karoo National Park which we visited before you could get out anywhere and do some birding and now you're not allowed out so it's it's kind of inconvenient for a, I was just thinking about Karoo extra it, restrictions I enjoyed that place way more before there were lions it was mm-hmm. way better for birding the Karoo is also just a place you want to get out and look at the scenery you want yep. to look at the plants and the, just the huge botanical diversity and you can't do that anymore. You're just stuck in the car. I'm sure that in terms of getting more visitors, it was successful for me personally. Uh, not I, I enjoy crew less with lions. In summary, <laughs> it's you know even they are a little bit cliched and stuff. It's still an absolutely amazing experience. I mean, yeah, we, we definitely strongly recommend it and often the places where you do safaris uh, they've got huge bird diversity as well so you know doing like a birding safari is a pretty it's a, you're pretty guaranteed to have a good time so you know even there are though there are a lot of other cool things to see around the world it's definitely a kind of nature highlight i mean there was one lady that on our first game drive here and she'd traveled like all over the world she she said um, that was the best wildlife experience that I've ever had she said you know so it is it is pretty cool it's recommended for just about anybody Uh, and there's so many different ways of doing it so many options I do think more people should consider like a general natural history or a birding type of trip because you end up just seeing so much more so many mammal safaris just about the plants as well and you know just a bit more you know all round experience Okay, that's all we've got time for. We've got to go and have our delicious um, safari lunch, lunch. <laughs> over-the-top lunch. They're probably going to slip into the room while we're having and then, lunch and try to do something for us. Yep, definitely. Embed some edibles in Ken, our Ken bedding. Ken left a little sign outside his, uh, um, outside his room, like, basically, do not enter. <laughs> no service required. But, um, yeah, we're off to have lunch now, and then we're going to have our afternoon game drive. But we've got another couple of days here. Still looking forward to what we're going to see. But uh, yeah, many thanks for joining us again today. We're going to leave you with a bird that uh, that kind of gatecrashed our podcast, the, uh, the, the sulfur-breasted bushrike, this beautiful bird that was just outside. It's got quite a, a cool call. And it's kind of like a song of the bushveld as well. You often get it in these kind of savannah environments. Anyway, thanks for joining us. Thanks again to our patrons. And we will catch you again very soon. <laughs>